In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor, normally in Brussels, but currently in Derry. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's London correspondent at the G7 Summit in Cornwall. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and Dublin. As the US marks the UK's cards over the Northern Ireland Protocol, former US ambassador to the EU, Tony Gardner, deconstructs the Demarche debacle. US President Joe Biden de-dramatised the situation in Cornwall, but not before the protocol overshadowed the pre-summit agenda. And the EU's Brexit point man, Mara Shevchevich, said Europe's patience is wearing thin. What might happen when the threadbare fibres of forbearance finally fragment? First, let's have a look at Mara Shevchevich because earlier this week he gave a press conference while he was over at that joint committee meeting in London on Wednesday. And his tone was quite robust. Let's hear from him. We always prefer the negotiations. We always prefer finding the good solutions. And we demonstrated that we can do that. I was personally negotiating all grace periods in December with Lord Frost's predecessor. And at that time, uh, I was uh, asking explicitly these grace periods for March, for June, for the end of the year, are they fine? Will you manage? Do you have enough time? And we've been reassured that yes. And we even saw uh, the, uh, the statement uh, of uh, UK government, published on number 10 website, that uh, they are absolutely OK with it. So therefore, we've been so surprised when the first uh, batch of unilateral uh, uh, actions came. We started uh, the, the legal action. As you know, again, we tried to solve it uh, before it ends up in, uh, in court uh, by uh, additional flexibilities, by looking for, for, uh, for, the, for the solutions, and this is what uh, we are ready to do. But of course, as you would understand, uh, the fact that I mentioned that we are at the crossroads it means that uh, our patience uh, really is uh, wearing very, very thin, and uh, therefore we have to assess uh, all options uh, uh, we have uh, at our disposal. I was talking about the, the, the legal action, uh, I was talking about the arbitration, and of course I'm talking about the cross-retaliation. Uh, uh, therefore, we had very intense debate this morning and also yesterday evening with the Lord Frost, because I believe that uh, there are possible solutions. One of them, which would, I think, take care of 80% of our troubles, and I'm talking now about SPS uh, uh, checks, is uh, on the table, it's offered by, by us, this is so-called Swiss-type uh, SPS agreement, which would solve the problem just like that. I think we can really do that in a couple of weeks and 80% of the the checks and controls uh, will simply uh, not be uh, necessary anymore. But I'm kind of uh, struck uh, that that here the ideology prevails uh, over what is uh, good and important uh, for the people 
of uh, Northern Ireland. And I'm not, not, not just saying it because uh, it suits me. I'm actually talking uh, to the business stakeholders in Northern Ireland. I'm talking to, uh, to the uh, leaders uh, of, the, of the political parties. We had a joint outreach uh, uh, with Lord Frost just this Monday, and none of them to whom we'll talk said that have something against this type of uh, uh, SPS uh, alignment agreement. So I, I really don't understand. It's very difficult for us to grasp why we are not doing it. So what you would hear from our British uh, uh, partners uh, that they would like to go for risk-based uh, equivalence type of, of the agreement. And again, I can tell you we did it in the past, so we know exactly what it means. We have uh, uh, such agreement, for example, with, the, with the New Zealand. And uh, then I, later on, uh, Dan will point you to the website where we will publish the very clear comparison, what it means from the point of view of, of checks. The, if we are talking about uh, uh, the, uh, the so-called equivalence, it doesn't mean there will be no checks. There, are, there is a lot of checks, a lot of checks. Uh, and therefore, I don't understand why we spend so much time on something which we tried before, we know how it works, and we know that it will not solve the problem uh, of uh, uh, Northern Ireland. We are offering something which is tangible, credible, easy to do, and which could be accomplished very quickly. Sean Maraszewczyk, for the listener who can't see him, his delivery was quite robust, quite animated. He even channeled his inner Tommy Cooper at one point as he clicked his fingers and said 80% of the checks gone. Just like that. He genuinely yeah. seemed, again, very invested in this. Yeah, he is. And I mean, that uh, Tommy Cooper trick. Just like that. He's done it a, a couple of times before, including on BBC television a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but, you know, the point he's making, and he's trying to get it across to the British media, is if the uh, British were to sign up uh, to the type of veterinary agreement that he and the European Union are touting before them, then there would be a very quick uh, removal of the kind of checks that are needed uh, at the moment uh, as the protocol stands. So that is the lure and the offer to them. And, you know, he was animated in uh, certainly in the clips you were uh, playing there. Other times the press conference, frankly, dragged a little bit as he went into uh, fairly uh, pedantic detail about uh, what was under discussion, but that was all right. I mean, some of this exposition was needed because when you get a room full of journalists who are, are not following this kind of detail uh, on a, a daily or weekly or even monthly basis, they do need to be led through the process. Uh, I, I didn't think he was uh, particularly uh, table thumping or anything like that in his, his presentations. Uh, he was firm, but you know, not shouting, not demanding. Uh, not being belligerent in any way, uh, but still getting it across to them, the sense of frustration that exists on the European side. And you got that from uh, talking to other people around the, the edges of this process, because one of the things that uh, has been annoying them is this claim by the British that they've sent in a dozen papers to the EU that have not been responded to. The EU said, well, look, we responded to all of them with phone calls. We've been talking this out with our British counterparts, as they well know, but they have a habit of sending stuff in late, according to the EU. At the, you don't get proposals until the last minute. And then there's a sudden burst of publicity saying the EU hasn't responded to this. And uh, that kind of annoys them. The, the one that they're chiefly worked up about at the moment is the uh, proposals from the British about how they would access, how the EU would access real-time customs information. This is something that was signed up to uh, last December. Uh, in the uh, talks then, uh, it hasn't been implemented. Uh, the British side said uh, earlier in the week, yes, we have sent them in a paper. It's been, when was it sent in? It was sent in on Monday. 
and they didn't get a response for a meeting where the two principals were having a private meeting the very next day on Tuesday. So should we be surprised that there isn't a detailed uh, response written down on paper to a paper that only appears the day before? Probably not. That's the kind of uh, process we're at at the moment. Both sides saying the other isn't putting in uh, the serious efforts with the paperwork and each side saying, well, we're doing all the serious efforts on the paperwork, but the paperwork obviously not matching up and not aligning. And again, the really uh, significant uh, point that EU uh, diplomats would make uh, in this whole process is there is no end point in sight. They haven't either side defined what the end point is going to be, particularly the British side. In other words, the EU still don't really know what they absolutely want out of this process. And until that is defined, everything else is going to be difficult because if you don't know what the end point is, how do you know how to get there? Right. Tony, speaking of EU diplomats, Mara Shevchevich was speaking to them behind closed doors. Was he any Was he any more or less animated when speaking to EU ambassadors in Brussels? Uh, he gave quite a detailed uh, readout to EU ambassadors in Brussels on Thursday, yesterday. Uh, we're recording this obviously on Friday, uh, just about the meeting in London and his dinner the night before the meeting with David Frost. And I think at this stage, all the expectations are that the UK will once again take a unilateral move on the protocol at the end of this month the grace period for chilled meats sausages and so on comes to an end and uh, everyone expects the uk to unilaterally extend that grace period by itself without consulting the eu so the i suppose the the tenor of mara Shevchevich's briefing to eu ambassadors on thursday was what what do we do about this and I think he is coming under quite a bit of pressure from member states to, to, to say how is the commission going to respond to this uh, because I think many on the EU side feel that the UK is just simply trying to force the EU into a corner, to force the, the EU into escalating things in, in a way that would give Boris Johnson at least temporarily some domestic uh, sucker and, and, and cover from the Conservative Party, Brexiteers, uh, Unionists and so on. Um, so the, I think the Commission and Member States are looking very carefully at how they respond to the latest unilateral measure. I mean, we can talk about the, the details around sausages if we if viewers are uh, so inclined. But um, the message I'm getting is that the EU wants to really have a staggered approach to this uh, and certainly like not get into a trade war simply over sausages and chilled meats. And of course, that was the tenor of a lot of questions from UK journalists at that uh, press conference that Sean was talking about. They kept wanting to know uh, how, you know, when are you going to trigger retaliatory measures if the UK continues on this path? What tariffs are you going to slap on British goods? This kind of thing. And I think the EU very rightly think that this is a bit of a trap being set for them. Uh, especially given that the grace period expires just 11 days before the, the the peak of the marching season in Northern Ireland. So essentially they're looking at three options. One is to continue the legal action that they have at the moment, which they triggered back in March when the UK announced those initial unilateral moves. That is currently 
kind of on its way to the European Court of Justice because the the EU triggered the infringement proceedings with a, a what they call a letter of formal notice. The UK replied to that. The reply was deemed as not nearly good enough. Uh, the next step from the Commission will be a reasoned opinion, and then that's the sort of threshold into the European Court of Justice. And Mara Shevchevich told ambassadors that that could end up in the Court of Justice as early as September. Uh, so then you can look uh, at, at the next option, which is triggering the dispute settlement mechanism within the withdrawal agreement itself. And then the third option, which is seen as the most serious one, would be to trigger cross-retaliation through the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, uh, the TCA. Uh, that's where you could get into tariffs or some kind of retaliatory measures, but certainly they want to leave that one you know, on the shelf for the moment uh, and just keep the pressure up. Uh, so he sent the certain legal services off in the commission to come up with a very precise legal strategy uh, to, to, to show the UK that they are serious about trying to steer the UK back onto a course of, as they would see it, cooperation and not unilateral steps, but also not to fall into the trap of, of having a big escalation and talk about trade wars and sausage wars, you know, at a moment of, of high tension in, in Northern Ireland with the marching season. And I think Mara Shevchevich made this perfectly clear to member states, and I think they understand that. Uh, so, the, so they generally agree with his strategy uh, to have a cautious, measured, staggered approach, but one that is precise and is definitely there in the background. Okay, Sean, the narrative that the UK is keen to put out is that whatever about Mara Shevchevich's detailed understanding of Northern Ireland, the protocol and the Good Friday Agreement, that Brussels as a whole, or certainly key quarters of the European Commission, don't get Northern Ireland, don't get the nuance, uh, and don't really get Northern Ireland's place in the UK, at least according to sources that we were speaking to. Yeah, uh, which sounded a bit like um, other sources from another um, small country, which we know rather well, who say similar sort of things about their British <laughs> counterparts from time to time. Um, look, Northern Ireland is a, a, a unique place and can be uh, a challenge for some people to get their heads around. One of the criticisms of the British side of the EU is that, OK, it's fine when you're talking to people who are uh, au fait with Northern Ireland and who are very tuned in to the uh, particularities of the protocol, but if you go to some other DG who might be used to dealing with trade deals with China or India or whatever, and that's playing on their mind, uh, then they see this small place of 1.8 million and they say, look, there's a deal, that's it, just do what you're told. Uh, and that's what they're uh, kind of leveling the criticism at. However, uh, there is a team working on this for the European Commission, and uh, they're all supposed to, to know what they're doing. Um, so, you know, is that really valid criticism? I don't know. Mm. What did you think of the, that, what they were saying? Well, well what I, what I suppose it, it, I, I'm struck by the notion that from the UK side, they're accusing the EU of taking an overly theological or political viewpoint on things. Uh, and at the same time, the principle of sovereignty from the UK side could be seen to be equally rigid. But the UK doesn't seem to see the European Union's adherence to the single market and the pooling of sovereignty that's required for that to be as worthy an issue as national sovereignty. I don't know, Tony, would would that be reflected in conversations you have? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's widely accepted that 
the, just the whole nature of Brexit and what's happened since the vote on the 23rd of June 2016 is that Ireland was prepared, Ireland was staying at the table and Ireland had a huge advantage in you know, getting its position across on the risk to the peace process, the risk to the oil island economy, the, the nature of what a hard border might do to the peace process. They outsourced that and they they sort of internalized that into uh, EU thinking, you know, across the board, both at institutions level and at member state level. And when push came to shove, they were always going to favor the Irish standpoint over the British one. So that was why Britain constantly in the negotiations for the withdrawal agreement and then the revised Irish protocol had to get knocked back into positions that they were deeply uncomfortable with. Um, and throughout that time, the Irish position was front and centre. The unionist position didn't really get the same purchase. Uh, I mean, Northern Ireland officials had to come over to Brussels, but it all had to be done through the UK representative and representation in Brussels. Um, everything was highly centralised in Whitehall. The Department of Foreign Affairs in Dublin had done such a professional job of, uh, of, of rolling the pitch before the match. And uh, it was a struggle for unionist sensitivities to um to, to get any purchase in in that in that sense. But I think when you when you put that to people in Brussels, they'll say, well, those sensitivities were simply made more sensitive and expectations were raised on the unionist side by the British government, either telling them that the protocol could be renegotiated or telling them, them that ultimately there wouldn't be any checks and controls and not to worry about a thing. Uh, and that's where they feel that the blame lies, that, that okay, we understand that unionists are upset about this. We're, you know, we're doing our best to find flexibilities. But why did the UK take so long to prepare for the protocol and and take so long or not at all condition unionism into accepting the, the difficult, painful compromises that right. would be involved. Sean, the, the issue of a, even a temporary SPS agreement was quickly brushed over on the UK side. They dismiss it as unsatisfactory. And yet there is no clear and detailed rationale outlined for that Apart from maybe one assumes the the principle, even temporarily conceded, of sovereignty. If it was temporarily conceded, then it's it's conceded forever. Is that the thinking? Well, one of the other thoughts uh, that has been expressed by uh, British officials is that it's unsatisfactory to have a temporary arrangement um, covering uh, such a vast area as SPS that uh, firms and farmers really need uh, a permanent situation. Uh, but then again, what could be more temporary than a, a temporary derogation in the form of uh, the grace periods, which were built into this agreement and then unilaterally extended? So that's a, a, mm. a, an ongoing, very movable feast uh, in every sense of the word there. Um, so, you know, if you had a, a temporary agreement of the sort being proposed by Mara Shevchovic, that the British would agree to be in dynamic alignment with EU rules, very easy at the moment because nobody has changed their rules uh, and they're all identical. Uh, I'd just let that go until you get to the point where you start doing a serious trade deal with, say, America or Brazil, uh, which everybody envisages is uh, quite far down the road. At that point, 
you might want to look at changing. But that would give everybody more time to think through their positions and see where they want to go. Again, right. this idea of the ultimate destination uh, in this protocol issue I mean, I think it, uh, it, has it, to be figured out. But also in, in a more short-term threat, though, uh, is uh, uh, an Australian trade deal. Uh, we know that uh, Liz Truss, uh, the trade secretary in here in the UK, has been uh, talking up the idea of trying to get one done in mid-June, which is this month. The Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, is coming to this G7 summit as a guest of Boris Johnson. He's expected to meet the Prime Minister in Downing Street next week. He's not doing these bilaterals here at the summit. He's doing them in London. Uh, after all, the summitry is out of the way. Might that be an opportunity to have a trade deal with Australia? Some people think it's even that is still quite far away. But if they were, might it be a way of... Uh, effectively torpedoing the idea of having a regulatory alignment with the EU uh, by getting a very quick deal on agricultural imports uh, with Australia. It's, you know, I think an open question, something to watch out for in the coming days. Yeah, Tony, just before you come in there, I, it is hard to get your head around, at least on, on, on my end, the protestation that, well, we didn't see, this is from the UK side, we didn't see how problematic the protocol would be. But why were their grace periods agreed if it wasn't if they weren't seen as problematic and something that would require adjustment? Well, that was precisely the point that Shevchevich was making uh, in his presentation after his meeting with Lord Frost, that during the talks last year, he kept saying to them, you want grace periods, need them. Are you sure this is long enough? Are you sure you have enough time here to do what you need to do? If you need more time, take more time. And again, this goes back to the whole uh, uh, idea of a transition period. Uh, when this process started, uh, everybody assumed there'd be a two-year transition period. Then, because of the parliamentary uh, difficulties in 2019, that year was effectively used up uh, in arguing about the nature of the Brexit deal. And then we were down to an 11-month transition period. And the offer of an extension uh, in that period, as we know, uh, was not taken up by the British side last summer, uh, by last June when it could have been. Uh, and so they have now started using effectively mini transition periods in the form of these grace periods and then extending them themselves rather than having a general uh, transition period, uh, if you like, for a two or maybe three year period in which period these things could have been worked out, which is what you have transition periods for in the first place. Right. So perhaps rushing through it, you know, rushed law is bad law, as they say. Perhaps we're seeing an example of it right now being played out. All right, Tony, you wanted to come in there. Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, no, it was just to pick up on Sean's point about the the idea of a temporary alignment with the EU's food safety and animal health rules. And the question, you know, well, what, what happens at the end of that temporary period when the UK does sign a trade agreement with, say, the US, which would mean they would have to then uncouple themselves from EU agri-food law. Well, the view in the Commission is that, you know, it's it's not a temporary solution. It is another kind of bridge uh, and that the protocol is the permanent solution, or at least until the Northern Ireland Assembly votes it down. So just say you have a four or five or six year period when the UK does stay aligned with EU uh, rules, then you use that period of time to make sure that you have the border control posts uh, built, that you have the databases, the access to IT systems all in place, and then the protocol operates properly uh, at that point. And if it should so happen that the UK doesn't 
sign a free trade agreement with America that obliges them to step away from the EU's agri-food regulatory orbit, then all the better uh, kind of thing. Um, and interestingly, that whole question about the Biden administration's intervention before the G7, uh, as far as I could see, there was there was reporting that he the administration believes that a US-UK free trade agreement would not necessarily have to be, uh, you know, overtake uh, an alignment arrangement that the yeah. EU has with the UK. And that was echoed by Congressman Brendan Boyle on the uh, 6-1 News last night, last night being Thursday. Um, as we record this, of course, Sean, what we didn't know when we were speaking to UK sources was that uh, the US had already spoken uh, to the UK and delivered this démarche at that point. And of course that intervention welcomed by Micheál Martin who was speaking at the British Irish Council today in County Fermanagh. Uh, you know, from our perspective we believe that the mechanisms exist within the uh, trade and cooperation agreement uh, and within the withdrawal agreement and the protocol to facilitate a working out of this of these issues and there, there are issues to be refined and resolved uh, we acknowledge that but we believe the mechanisms within the framework agreement uh, facilitate that and we're or you and I've said this to Boris and, and, and to Michael and, and others that I think there's opportunity within that framework to resolve this I do believe that the, the, the SPS is, is, is certainly the direction of travel that we should pursue as constructively as we possibly can uh, and I think the, if the US is saying that certainly arriving at an SPS agreement doesn't in any way negatively impact on the potential of a US-UK trade deal, then I think that definitely offers up potential uh, for progress here. That was the most interesting story of the week. A great scoop by Patrick McGuire of the London Times. Um, at page one lead for the paper indeed uh, on Thursday of this week uh, that the uh, top-ranking diplomat uh, here in the UK from the uh, American Embassy, the Chargé d'Affaires, as Biden administration haven't installed their own uh, person yet in London, uh, came, had a meeting uh, with uh, Lord Frost and um, Professor Bew, uh, Boris Johnson's foreign policy advisor, and read slowly a statement uh, of the uh, Biden administration's wishes uh, as to how this uh, protocol business should be dealt with. And according to the reporting, which was based on a leaked memorandum, a leaked note taken by British officials of what had happened, uh, that in itself is interesting, uh, they had, the Americans had said, as you say, uh, if they sign up to this alignment deal, it won't get in the way of a broader uh, UK-US uh, trade deal, uh, which is a, an interesting concession, I think, on the American part, uh, possibly uh, excluding already uh, agricultural goods or parts of agricultural goods from a U.S. trade deal, that, that is, uh, would be a very big move by the Americans, who generally do try to include their agricultural sector in mm. uh, free trade deals. Of so course, it may also indicate they don't see it on the horizon anytime soon. Well, yes and no. I mean, um, remember, the EU itself has been seeking for quite a long time now to do uh, a free trade deal with America. I mean, we talk about free trade deal. The level of tariffs uh, on uh, each other's goods are tiny there, the lowest average tariff rate in the world between major trading partners. Um, it's down to really technical standards at this stage they want to try and bring into alignment. And that's part of the bigger strategic picture where they're trying to uh, keep control, I guess, of the regulatory agenda in the face of a rising, uh, very rapidly rising Chinese economy and the potential for uh, China and allies to start writing the rule books and taking that 
privilege and power away from the Western world. Uh, so trying to bring EU and US into alignment on a lot of trading standards uh, is a big strategic objective. A lot of this goes back to the um, TTIP process, which started in uh, um, Dublin Castle in, uh, during the Irish presidency in 2013. Uh, at that stage, EU officials were briefing us that the issues like chlorinated chicken had been basically solved. There was a regulatory fix already in the bag uh, that they were ready to go there. The issue of hormone beef, they had worked it out with their American counterparts, how that was going to be dealt with as well. Not imported into Europe, there'd be separate herds, etc., etc. But a lot of this groundwork has already been done on the agricultural sector. But the deal itself could not be sealed, not during the Obama time, and it went into the deep freeze before the Trump administration uh, took power. But it can be taken out again and thawed out uh, uh, to see if uh, any part or parts of that can be reactivated. So perhaps in that bigger context, uh, there mightn't be the kind of issues that would block uh, Britain getting involved in the same kind of trade deal as the EU, uh, unless, of course, Britain wants to go and do more agriculturally based trade deals with other uh, big agricultural producers like Brazil. But again, there's not that many others out there. Uh, who would have the kind of impact mm. uh, right across the piece and would really fit in with the nature of the British economy? Sure, and even uh, in the recent worthwhile exposing themselves to. And even in the recent proposed Mercosur deal with the between the EU and Mercosur, there was going to be alignment of standards uh, there as well. So I mean, it doesn't necessarily require uh, a dropping of the barrel. Though I'm sure um, Irish farmers would disagree strenuously with that one. Uh, yeah, and that's another one that's been on the slow lane for a long, mm. long time. Also, don't forget there's there's tariffs imposed by Trump on uh, EU. Uh, steel and aluminium products. So they've got a trade dispute already going right. there that they need to try and sort out. And the Airbus subsidies, which has been going on since all of us were in short pants. Right. Of course, Sean, where you are, Boris Johnson took to the beach to do an interview with the BBC and in it, he denied he was under any pressure from Joe Biden. So the day march is one thing, but the face-to-face -face meeting was far more cordial. Well, yeah, it was. And because both of them have uh, a lot of issues to, to cover and a uh, a lot of big strategic things to do. I mean, Biden's objective coming to Europe on this first visit is to try and get the West all lined up uh, to start behaving in a way that befits a big, huge strategic block of industrialized democracies. Uh, and he wants to be able to deploy them. I mean, Biden is a foreign policy expert. He wants to be able to deploy that power of the West against China, against Russia, against Belarus over the air piracy, things like that. Uh, so what he would see as local distractions that are embittering uh, at least half of the alliance uh, against one another, like the Northern Ireland Protocol row, he wants to get that sorted. That's why the message was sent before this meeting. It was there in the air. And I guess Joe Biden exercising that, that ultimate in um, uh, power exercising by powerful people. He didn't actually have to say much about this because the British already knew what he thought and they were going to uh, tiptoe around it and agree not to talk about it and try and smooth things out and agree on what they could agree on. This is what the Prime Minister said afterwards. And one of those subjects that the US is alarmed about is what's happening with the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, now, did he make it clear he expects you to sort it out? I mean, are you going to sort this out? There seems to be increasing concern. Uh, well, he, no, no, the president didn't say anything of, of the kind. But what I think you can you can certainly say, Laura, is that everybody, uh, and that includes me, it includes uh, our friends in Brussels, uh, includes Washington. Everybody 
has a massive interest in making sure that we keep the the essential symmetry of the of the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, we keep the we keep the balance. Um, and you know, don't forget, this was a, this was a, an achievement uh, in which America was involved. It was an achievement of. Uh, of successive but isn't, UK but isn't governments that why it's as so well as the Irish government but, but isn't that why it's so important that you stick to the deal done with the EU that you negotiated you signed and they now say frankly the UK is not sticking to what they signed I, up to I, I think it's very important that we uh, keep the the balance and symmetry of the of the Good Friday Agreement and uh, and make sure, and, and you will, you will, but, you but will I'm appreciate. But I'm asking about sticking to you the will protocol. You will sticking it. to the deal that you did with the European and Union. You will understand that there are ways of uh, enforcing the protocol, ways of making it work, uh, that um, uh, may be excessively uh, burdensome. But isn't the problem with what's happened between you and the EU is that many leaders now have the impression that you say one thing and you do another. You signed up to the deal with the European Union, and they are very clear that the UK is not abiding by the deal that was well, done. I, I obviously, now, and I, they I, say there's no trust left now. Yeah, well, I obviously don't agree with that, but uh, I think that we will we will sort it out. And uh, the I think what people also understand, and I think whether they're in uh, Brussels or any, anywhere else, they understand that uh, the the we have to respect the the territorial integrity of the UK. We have to. Uh, respect that the you know there's a a UK uh, internal market is actually there in the in the protocol um, black and white several times we just need to make it work. Well, Tony, seeing as we're on this subject, um, who's this week's guest? Uh, very apt for the subject we're talking about. Yes, indeed, uh, Tony Gardner, who was the US ambassador to the EU uh, under the Obama administration, uh, and he's a fairly active individual on, on Twitter and writing columns and so on, on, uh, certainly the, the Trump administration's relationship with Europe and also the whole question of bre- Brexit and the Irish protocol. Uh, and he's had some observations to make about the Biden administration and this idea of the U.S., being able to somehow reconcile a free trade agreement with the UK in a way that wouldn't upset any alignment the UK keeps with the EU when it comes to food standards and and animal health and food safety and so on. Uh, So here's what he had to say. Tony Gardner, thanks so much for joining Brexit Republic, the podcast. Uh, Delighted to have you on the show. Uh, You are the former US ambassador to the European Union and author of Stars with Stripes, uh, The Essential Partnership Between the European Union and the United States. So I think in the week that we're in, you have a very good vantage point on the whole question of the G7, Boris Johnson, the European Union and the Biden administration. Can, can I ask you, first of all, on a technical note, what exactly is a démarche? Yes, there's been some misunderstanding about that. Some press articles have described it as a rebuke, uh, which it isn't. It can be. A demarche is a formal representation of a point of view from one government to another. It's kind of a weighty communication, but it doesn't have to be a reproach or rebuke. It just simply is a communication. And is this something that would typically be uh, used between close allies like the United States and the and the United Kingdom? 
I've been involved in, in delivering so-called demarches to the European Union, which is certainly a close ally of the United States, certainly was under Obama, and it is now, not under Trump, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> sure. So it's not just between the United States and, let's say, China or Russia. Okay, so so it's but what may, what would prompt a, a government to to use that particular instrument? Would it be to convey something that is kind of serious, uh, formal? Yes, yeah, something serious, something formal, an official position that's taken uh, hopefully w with seriousness by the recipient. And what do you think was the significance on this occasion? Because clearly we've had this ongoing and deepening tension between the United Kingdom and the European Union over the Northern Ireland Protocol and the question of implementation. And the Biden administration has been seen as something of a deus ex machina, potentially to, 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 you know, to bring some extra element to, to this deadlock. What is the significance of a demarche in that context? Well, expectations seem to be a little bit high. You know, it's not appropriate for the United States to come in and try to fix something as delicate as this issue uh, between two close allies. Um, but clearly, the United States does have an interest, having played an important role in the Good Friday Accords, uh, and certainly has an interest as a close ally of Ireland and a close ally of the European Union and a close ally of uh, the United Kingdom. It wants to see this issue resolved amicably. You know, what's different here from the Trump years is that this administration, like the Obama administration, sees the three sides of the triangle, meaning US, UK, UK, EU, EU, US, as being all important and needing to work together. So uh, I think it's a statement saying, uh, just a, a cautionary note, we re reiterate our, uh, you know, the, the, the interest that we have in making sure this, this, this uh, problem is solved. Now, we're not going to get into the nitty-gritty of telling, for example, the UK, you should just sign up to the veterinary equivalence agreement the EU has proposed or give any other instructions of that, course, of that sort because it just simply wouldn't be appropriate. We are not a negotiating party at the table. Uh, but what, what I think is appropriate to say is the temperature should be really reduced. Uh, it is not a good thing when countries play to their domestic uh, populations and grandstand and blame the other party, which has unfortunately been happening recently. Um, and when countries sign up to particular uh, uh, treaties, uh, normally it's a good thing to respect what is in those treaties. The UK knew very well what it was signing up to when it signed up to the Northern Ireland Protocol. It was negotiated at length, not at speed, but at length. It knew what it contained, and the results of that agreement uh, should, be, should be respected. It's always been assumed that the UK has wanted to keep its options open in terms of a free trade agreement with the US at some point, and that that was the reason why the UK has refused to countenance a, a Swiss-style veterinary or SPS agreement with the EU. Uh, and yet, the Biden administration has signaled that it, it may not necessarily be a problem. I mean, what, what's your understanding of the dynamic in Washington when, when we talk about a, a UK free trade agreement and we understand you know, the historical pressures from the US agriculture lobby on, on Congress and the role Congress plays in a free trade agreement? 
Yeah, I've never. I never thought it was a precondition for a U.S. U.K. free trade agreement that the U.K. should jettison all EU regulations. Uh, that may have been the view, by the way, under the Trump administration. In fact, it was said, I think, by Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross that, by the way, you Brits, if you want to have a good agreement with us Americans, you just ditch all those pesky E regulations. Well, that's just, A, that's not correct. We can get an agreement with the UK even when that doesn't happen. But B, it's also wrong from the perspective of many American investors in the UK who invested in the UK and the assumption that in fact the UK would be tightly aligned with EU regulations because it was a bridgehead to the larger, richer, frankly more interesting EU market. So it's just not true. Now there are indeed some regulations of the EU, obviously, including an ag, which pose problems for us. But it's just not correct to say a precondition is throw away all those EU regs. So the short answer is no. Um, if that's what the kind of a, a convenient pretext of the Brexiters, it's just not on. We can get an agreement. Now, I don't think it's high on the list. Uh, I don't think any free trade agreement is frankly high on the list right now. We're focusing on other things, including enforcing agreements that we have in place. Uh, working with the EU to change WTO rules to make sure the Chinese actually finally respect more of the rules they signed up to, from market access to investment and so forth. Um, there's a lot that we are doing, and there are some specific things we can do, cleaning up you know, Airbus Boeing dispute, um, working together on, uh, on subsidies, um, working together on supply chains, many issues. But a free trade agreement with the UK, I don't think it's on in the near term. Okay, just on the question of Joe Biden himself and his Irish-American connections, which are pretty well advertised and appreciated by the Irish government. I think Simon Coveney, the foreign minister, uh, spoke to Jake Sullivan in Shannon Airport last week for a couple of hours on, on the protocol and it's almost been suggested that on foot of that meeting, this demarche then materialised. I don't know, don't know if that's entirely accurate or, or true to the facts, but how important is Joe Biden's emotional ties with Ireland uh, in the way he positions the US government to, to the, the United Kingdom and the European Union? That's a really tough one. You know, I, I, I do know the president. I was privileged to work with him. I've known him for actually even before he was vice president. But it's hard for me to give you that personal view. I think it is real. It is real. Um, and it's clearly, you know, an emotional tie there. Um, but I, I really can't add anything beyond that. And I just don't know the sequence of events. Um, I, I do think that uh, the EU 27, however, is, is, has in fact reemerged as an essential partner. I've written about this in, in my book. Um, and even though the UK was a key member and is now left, the EU 27 remain a key partner of the United States on loads of issues. So, and Ireland is playing an important role, uh, obviously, as a member of this larger group. So all of those things play. Uh, his Irishness plays, but the EU plays as well. Maro Shevchevich, the EU's uh, co-chair of the Joint Committee, depicted a crossroads facing the, the United Kingdom. Either uh, London cooperates proactively and constructively with the European Union in trying to find those flexibilities that would make the protocol a little less burdensome, or it could continue on a path of confrontation, as he would see it. 
uh, with further unilateral actions. Now, it, it doesn't seem to me, uh, certainly in the immediate sense, that the UK is about to change course and all the expectations are that the UK will once again take a unilateral extension of a grace period at the end of this month when it comes to chilled meats, uh, sausages, composite meals mm. and so on. Uh, and, you know, again, with the backdrop of the marching season in Northern Ireland, the, the, the potential for loyalist violence, adding to an escalation of, of the whole uh, situation. I mean, do you think the Biden administration has kind of shot its bolt on this one and, and would prefer not to get involved again? Or do you think the administration will stay very closely involved and, and to keep that pressure, if you like, uh, on the UK government? I think that there will be pressure. I think it'll be discreet pressure um, because it really would be a shame if there were um, a, a legal, you know, wrangling now with the EU suing Britain and, and you know Britain doing you know unilateral things or continue to act unilaterally and reinterpreted the agreement. You know, what's 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 a real shame is to see a close ally, uh, as I was suggesting earlier. Um, First, a while ago, threatening to breach international law and then reinterpreting an agreement that it signed and then negotiated, now changing its tune entirely uh, about uh, an agreement which was at the time presented as a major improvement from the May backstop, which suffered many defeats in Parliament. And this was presented as a, a huge victory for the Prime Minister. And now many people are saying, well, the protocol is unworkable. Uh, the EU is being purist. Well, they're applying the agreement that the UK negotiated. I think it is, it's appropriate behind closed doors, I think, for the United States to say to, to, to the UK and to the EU, you really need to find a solution to this. Um, you need to negotiate in good faith. There are major consequences uh, on both of you and actually third parties, including the United States, US companies and other, uh, other com uh, countries' companies. So I think that is the message rather than telling any side what to do, uh, stop the grandstanding, lower the temperature, uh, negotiate in good faith, apply the rules, uh, and remember what is happening is the logical consequence of things that were decided by the UK government its sovereign right, i.e. to leave the EU. That's the fundamental point of departure. Um, and, you know, I've known Boris Johnson for 36 years. I went to school with him. I went to Oxford with him. And I remember my last meeting with him it was two weeks after Donald Trump was elected. And he kind of gave me a preview of his thoughts then. He, he thought that Donald Trump's victory was fantastic. It was a great opportunity for the UK. And he thought that Donald Trump's negotiating strategy was brilliant, meaning that one should go in hard, quote unquote, one should be unpredictable, one should put the other side on the back foot. And I said, well, that's just not the way I conduct myself <laughs> you know do you think that's what the, that has informed boris johnson's absolutely. strategy in the with the, with the protocol absolutely mm. absolutely that's interesting it's, it's a way of, of keeping the other side off guard and sort of getting an advantage and thinking that may was too soft and you know others were too soft and um you know when when i'm faced with that kind of a a, a position when i've negotiated for 30 years in the private sector uh, my back goes up and my spine stiffens um, uh, that's you know. I think many people are like that. I when I negotiate, I would like to see a partner who whom I really think I can, you know, b believes is 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 negotiating in good faith. This is what's necessary. Well, we all know how the Trump presidency ended uh, in a not a very edifying spectacle in Capitol Hill. Let's hope 
<laughs> Donald Trump's advice to Boris Johnson doesn't extend in that direction. But look, uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Tony Gardner, former U.S. ambassador to the EU uh, and author of Stars with Stripes, The Essential Relationship Between the European Union and the United States. Thanks so much for joining us on Brexit Republic. Great to be with you. Okay, Sean, where you are at the moment, you're skipping off soon as we record this uh, to a number of briefings. But what's coming up over the coming days? You're stuck in Cornwall for some time to come. I'm stuck in Cornwall till Monday morning um, because the G7 summit is going to continue on here until Sunday afternoon. But the summiteering and diplomacy doesn't stop then because uh, Joe Biden and Boris Johnson and Angela Merkel and Mario Draghi Mm. uh, and President Macron, they're all heading to Brussels for the NATO summit on Monday. Then Boris Johnson comes back here. But then the EU are having a summit um, next week and Joe Biden is going to be involved in that as well. And then he's going on to meet with... Uh, President Putin in Geneva on Wednesday and then somewhere back in the midst of all this the uh, Australian Prime Minister as we mentioned is going to be meeting with Boris Johnson so we'll be keeping a bit of an eye out on that one to see uh, what way the wind is blowing uh, with Australia I mean they want to get a deal with Britain but they also want to get a deal with the European Union which they've again been negotiating for years does one help or hinder the other uh, and how would it play into the current Brexit dispute? So that's what I'll be watching out for next week. And no doubt, practicing your sea shanties, seeing as that's the entertainment that's been that's been laid <laughs> You've got to do your own entertainment round here. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, what's coming up on your radar when you? Well, I I was going to say when you return from leave, but you've got this habit that that we need to talk about. That's hard Can to break. But anyway, next week, Tony, what's coming up? Well, Sean, Sean has, has done my work for me. Yeah, I mean, the, the big story next week in Brussels will be the NATO summit with Joe Biden coming into town on Monday. And then the, he'll be meeting the EU as well. And that big meeting with Vladimir Putin uh, in Geneva. Um, more specifically on, you know, where do we pick up the pieces on the Northern Ireland Protocol after that, you know, fairly sober and difficult joint committee meeting well the word is that the technical talks will get back up and running again Uh, one issue to watch closely and we've talked about it quite a bit on the podcast is medicines and what i'm told is that the, the the eu is now going to accelerate some kind of agreement on medicines so that there can't be any disruption to the supply of medicines from GB into Northern Ireland. And we had this whole question about this uh, cancer drug, uh, Tegriso, that hit the headlines a few weeks ago. It looks like they're going to kind of hive that particular issue off from all the other SPS and database uh, bones of contention and accelerate some kind of agreement there whereby the the EU will essentially recognise that a company or a pharmaceutical firm in the UK can be licensed to distribute those medicines and drugs into Northern Ireland. They don't have to be an authorised holder in Northern Ireland or in another EU member state. And as chance would have it, that whole question of medicines and falsified medicines and uh, batch testing and quality control, safety control and so on, that is up for review next year anyway at EU level. So they may well when they're changing the legislation, incorporate some kind of agreement uh, or arrangement whereby there there's no risk or technical problem with medicines going from GB uh, to Northern Ireland. Um, that aside, yeah, they're going to get back to the drawing board on, on SPS, but 
it's hard to see how they're going to reinvent the wheel on that one. Um, the UK has been looking at this idea of both sides kind of declare that they have common high standards on food safety and animal health uh, and on pet health. So we talked about rabies, I think, last week. Uh, and if there was any divergence from that by the UK, then there could be mechanisms in place to mitigate any risk that would be triggered. Um, but I think the EU still regard that as equivalence by another name, and that's something that they just think will not work. Uh, so they're still sticking to the idea of dynamic alignment uh, for a temporary period, um, as has been suggested. So we'll just keep an eye on that one. All right. Okay. Well, one more thing there, uh, just in terms of uh, some of our listeners have been asking about the VAT on cars, hey. cars in Northern Ireland. A small little nugget on that one. Um, nothing hard and fast, I'm afraid, folks, but the EU are saying they, they are offering uh, a flexibility on the VAT margin scheme on secondhand cars. Uh, where they say they understand the problem and they're working with the uh, UK Treasury to look at ways that they might be able to allow access to affordable second-hand cars for consumers in Northern Ireland. That's, uh, I'm afraid, all we have on that for the moment, but uh, we'll keep an eye something on we'll be working away in the background. As uh, we should have mentioned earlier, with all the officials, it's not just leaders who are here, but lots of officials, and uh, as you've said, sidebar meetings at things like the G7 and NATO uh, and the EU summit are, are where opportunities arise for the possible cracking of deals so maybe there will be a political direction given to officials over the coming days and when those working groups get back at it uh, over the coming days and weeks ahead they might have got some new uh, writing instructions we can only hope from this uh, week of summitry all right that's it from me colm omongoin rt's deputy foreign editor here in dublin from me sean whelan at the g7 summit in cornwall and from me tony Connolly in derry i'll be back in brussels next week and thanks so much for listening